back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood, and it's great to be here. Good to have you guys back on. We are brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cots Bros has a full line of trapping supplies, so check them out at their website. We're also brought to you by OnX Maps. Use your phone as a GPS on the trap line. Mark your trap locations, get landowner information, scout using the latest aerial imagery, and do all kinds of things you never thought possible with the OnX map on your phone or your tablet or your desktop. You can use it at all these different places, and all of your data is stored in the cloud, so you don't have to worry about backing it up or losing, dropping your phone or breaking something and losing data. Uh, OnXMaps.com. Use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, to get 20% off of your first purchase. You got to do that on onxmaps.com. And finally, we have a very special sponsor of this podcast episode, and that is my new book. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, More Than Wolverine, an Alaska Wilderness Trapline by Jeremiah Wood. This book is out as of now. Um, it, I released it this week on amazon.com. And I'm really excited to talk with you about it tonight. We're going to go over a little bit of the background. Um, if you if you weren't around for the whole Alaska trip that I took two years ago, we can get into a little bit of that history maybe. Um, talk about uh, the whole process of, of writing the book and, and how we got how I got to where I am right now. And uh, what I'm going to do is to try to convince you to buy a copy of the book. I'm also going to read a uh, an excerpt. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little section for you um, to kind of give you an idea of uh, what to expect. But yeah, I just got in from the wood lot. I was out cutting some wood down the road from the house that I, I was outside all day, and I knew I was gonna get home and eat supper. And as soon as I sat down, I was gonna have a hard time getting up. So I had to force myself to come out and start a fire in the fur shed and get out here and do a podcast episode it has been a while um i i do miss it a little bit but i boy i'm i'm able to to do a lot of things so i i guess i can't complain one of the one of the big things that i was able to do and i decided to do was to proceed with publishing this book and this has been a really important really special project for me personally um basically I, i guess i guess i'll go way back to the beginning and while you're listening to this if you have a spare second i want you to go to amazon.com and search uh for more than wolverine um the book's gonna pop up please order it you can get the uh, kindle kindle ebook is available immediately or you can order the paperback and uh, that'll take a few days but uh, you'll get it before too long um i a lot of people have been asking me if uh if they can purchase it from the Trapping Today store, eventually you will be able to purchase it from the Trapping Today store. And uh, I will, if I if I ship those from here, I will autograph them. I will sign them. Um, but I am starting out with Amazon, and there's a very important reason for that. Um, th- this is a book that I think has a lot of appeal outside of the the trapping community it's not really a trapping book it's a it's an experience you know it, it's a it's a book about a place and it, it's a to a book about a really special place uh to me it's a book about history it's a book about wilderness it's a book about freedom it's a book um about you know making some things happen that that uh you might have been dreaming about for a long time so 
I think that this appeals to a lot of uh, a much wider audience, and it is going to be a challenge for me to um, to get this book out in front of uh, a wide audience. So part of doing that is taking advantage of Amazon's algorithm, and basically what Amazon does is if they see that I'm selling a certain uh, copy, a certain book title is selling a lot of copies over a short period of time, uh, the algorithm determines that that book is popular, especially if it's a new book that's that's just on the market. And it will cause Amazon to show that book to other um, customers who may have otherwise not seen it in the advertisements or in the uh, people also liked or you should check this out you know how Amazon has all those different things they try to get you to buy stuff well um, if the more the more books that I sell through Amazon uh, the more likely that's going to happen and I, I want this to be able to show up for a lot of people I want to I want to get it up in the rankings so um, I, I would I would really really appreciate um, it if you would buy a copy from Amazon that would help me a lot um, because it will help me to sell more copies uh, also you know I don't really get much more money um, if I ship it from here I may get a few dollars extra but really when you look at the time that's involved um, if if you buy it on Amazon uh, it they print it and they ship it direct to you and I don't lift a finger and I you know if you if you factor in the value of time then uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really about the same for me. I I I'm I'm fine with you just getting it on Amazon. If you want to buy it from the store, uh, you're gonna have to wait. And I I would really really appreciate if you bought a copy. Maybe maybe if you wouldn't mind um, buying a copy at from Amazon right now, and then uh, you know getting that signed copy uh, later on when it's available at the Trapping Today store. But I'm gonna hold off for just a little bit. Um, to try to get sales on Amazon. And one of the things that I, I'm going to kind of, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and throw this out there right now, and maybe I'll reiterate it later on uh, toward the end of the episode, but I'm, I'm really uh, not, I, I've always mentioned that I'm really not a good salesman. I feel like I'm a good writer, but I'm a terrible salesman. And uh, I, I, but I'm trying to force myself to say this, that I get, um, and I mentioned this last night, I did a YouTube live stream that I talked about the book and I actually did a different reading from a different section if you want to check that out on my uh, Trapping Today YouTube channel. But I, I get emails from podcast listeners all the time and it, it's people are, are really appreciative of the podcast and and uh, things that they've learned and talked about how helpful it's been and everything and, and uh, I, I really love those those emails and I love how people are grateful and appreciative and and people say this this has helped a lot you know this this has helped sort of people find a place in the trapping community when you know if, if they're new to trapping and don't really haven't really experienced it and don't have have friends that trap um, it's helped a lot of people learn from the different interviews we've had and the different subjects topics that we've gotten into different aspects of trapping and it's just kept you know, keep people up to date and entertained and trapping. So, um, the podcast doesn't cost any money. Um, I do ask, you know, occasionally buy something from the Trapping Today store. That I, I'd appreciate that. But, 
but really uh, every once in a while I get to a point where I, I could really use use you guys' help. I could use the help of the community and uh, this is something that benefits uh, benefits me a great deal and also benefits you because you get to read the book. But um, I if I guess what I'm asking <laughs> in my long roundabout way of, of saying it is if I have ever provided you any value through the podcast, um, through answering emails, through whatever, um, if if I have provided value for you, f- to you, through this media, this medium, I am asking you to return the favor and please purchase a copy of this book. Um, please purchase a copy for yourself. Um, maybe purchase a copy for your friend. Uh, recommend it. Mention it to people. Spread the word. Let them know. Um, I I really do think that this. Uh, this book has a wide audience appeal, and I, I would love uh, for more people to get their hands on it and just get exposed to kind of this uh, this this whole trapping lifestyle. So that that's an interesting place that that I'm in because when I started out, I actually wasn't going to publish this book, and and there's a little bit of a, a backstory behind that. But um, just just to go way back, uh, I have kind of I, I grew up when I when I first got my hands on Furfish game magazines you know I'd always dreamed of uh, going living in the woods building a cabin all that and and I found out about trapping and I was instantly hooked that I could actually you know catch fur bearing animals and and get paid to do so and live in the woods and have I mean, it was just like a dream, and of course, I was twelve or fourteen years old, or whatever, and it was, it was not, uh, not anywhere close to reality, and I never really accepted that until a few years later. And then in high school, I got into trapping. It was an incredible thing; it changed my life. It was awesome. Um, but as I moved along and got into college and started working towards a career, I never. You know, I, I, I set aside that whole idea of, of going into the bush and living out there and trapping, and and uh, it, it really just wasn't a reality. Now, when I was a, uh, a student at the University of Maine in the wildlife department, I was the only trapper. Uh, there were other hunters, there were uh, anglers, and uh, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of more the green type, type crowd, I guess you could say. But I was the only trapper, and I was just any chance I would get, I'd mention trapping to people. Or you know, we'd be out in the field and looking at uh, Martin sign, or or doing some study on on some fur bearing animal, and I'd I'd talk about uh, my trap line and and all that, and and talk about how I wanted to. I, I remember one day we were on a field trip, and I I was talking with some friends about wanting to go up to Alaska and and trap as kind of this crazy dream and the uh the teacher of the course that i was in um took me aside uh at the end of the field trip and she said i got someone that that you need to talk to she said there's this kid josh fisher he's on uh, exchange from uh from university of alaska fairbanks and he's a trapper and an outdoorsman and, and i think you guys would really enjoy talking with each other so that's how I met Josh, who you've heard if you've listened to other podcast episodes um, in the past year or so. And Josh kind of fueled that spark, uh, that fire that that I had to to go up there. And we we spent I don't know 
countless hours in front of maps and dreaming and talking about trap lines here and cutting a trail there and we could build a cabin in this spot and it, it was uh it was really it, it was it it was enjoyable it, it was enjoyable uh, it was a uh, it was exciting it was exhilarating but it wasn't reality and i i kind of got into reality where i i got out of undergraduate school um i graduated and i got a, a seasonal job and then i got into grad school and i finished that and i get a full-time job as a professional fisheries biologist in montana and all throughout that time maine utah montana i i trapped uh, but i never did have that point in time where i was able to to just be done school not have a job and just go in the woods and just trap and i'd always kind of dreamed about that and it never happened and it never has happened since then so it, it it's something that kind of went away and i got back to maine i started doing the podcast i started getting into trapping a lot more and i started kind of rediscovering a lot of the old uh, books that I had read about the Alaska wilderness and about about trappers out there and I, I started kind of dreaming again this whole this whole idea of of trapping in Alaska kind of reemerged as as something that I I remembered that I had kind of set aside back then but something that was uh, for a time was really important to me and so I started sharing some of those books and and the things that I was reading here on the podcast and it was uh, sometime early on like maybe the about a year into the podcast that I did uh, an episode on a book called Hunters of the Northern Forest by Richard K. Nelson who was an anthropologist that studied survival uh, techniques of the um, Kuchin in in the Fort Yukon Alaska area the, the Alaska interior and this was a period of time when people really lived off the land still. It, it, the study took place around the 1970s, early 70s, late 60s. And people were making full-time livings, going out in the woods and trapping and, and staying there for months at a time, living in remote cabins and tent camps and and uh, just trapping fur the entire winter and, and making a full-time year salary in a place where there there really was no other economic option uh, other than trapping. It was a pretty cool thing. And it was shortly after that episode came out that I got an email from a guy named Jim Furtman. And if you listen to the podcast, you know Jim uh, from being on several episodes. And uh, Jim mentioned that his trap line, his modern day trap line, was not very far from that area that, that I had talked about in the book. So Jim and I got to talking, and we spent a lot of time uh, in in the uh, several weeks after that, just talking and and uh, you know I, I just uh, soaked up information and and knowledge and history uh, about the area. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know everything about it, uh, about the people uh, who still trapped, if there there still were trap lines out there, how you got there, how long the trap lines were, you know. What kind of cabins do you have? Do you use a dog dog team? Do you use snow snow machines? 
what do you catch for animals, what types of traps you use. Everything was just incredibly appealing to me. It was in the back of my mind, I was just thinking, wow, this is something, this is something that I could have done and I never did. And uh, at the same time, you know, the, the last Alaskans TV show had come on and that was, that, that is my favorite TV show. I don't really watch much TV, but that uh, far and away is, is uh, my favorite show because it shows the life of these people like Haimo Korth and Tyler and Ashley Selden and Bob Hart, people that that are still spending a significant portion of the year out in the bush. And the main part of being out there, or a major part of being out there, is trapping. So this all kind of came together, and the rest is history, I guess. Uh, Jim, I had him on the podcast. Um, we got to know each other. He invited me to go out there and spend a little time with him on his trap line, and, and we did it. So... Um, I, it was about a year of planning and saving money and getting everything together. And in 2020, February, uh, I uh, flew from the, the Northeast uh, to Fairbanks and then to Fort Yukon and uh, spent a couple weeks with Jim uh, on his remote wilderness trap line out, out there, about, about 45 miles uh, snow machine ride from Fort Yukon. It was quite an experience. I documented that on several YouTube videos and talked about it in podcast episodes. And I took notes. You know, I, I every day I took, I had a diary that I just kind of kept note of details because I, I, I wanted to remember things. And I remember my friend Eric Martin fr- from here in Maine had said, oh, you should write a book. That'd be a great topic for a book. And I'm thinking, boy, I can't write a, a whole book on on just one couple week trip to Alaska, but I wanted to write something. I'm I'm naturally someone who uh, is is kind of inclined to writing, so I kept notes and and I kind of forgot about it. I I got back to Maine. I got back into the swing of things, and summer came, and I was crazy busy on the farm and at work, and and everything kind of flew by in a blur. And then the next winter, 2020, 2021, um, I, I started to sit down and, and think about things. And I had, I had a little bit of spare time to, to sort of uh, time by myself to reflect and think. And I, I decided to start writing. And I pulled out that book that I had taken notes in. And I, really the biggest concern for me was I was afraid I was going to forget everything. Uh, over time, and, and I wanted to, I wanted to try to document based on my notes uh, what I could recall uh, a year later, before I lost too much of the detail. And so I started writing, and I wrote and wrote, and every chance I got, I wrote. And I finally just uh, got toward the end of writing, and I felt like I'd written everything I could write about the trip, and I had 36,000 words. And once that was all done, I, I just, I saved it on my computer and I walked away from it. And I, I always had in the back of my mind, you know, thought about whether I wanted to, to actually publish something. I discussed it with Jim. I, I talked with, with Josh about it a little bit, talked with, with Tyler Selden. Um, just, I had some kind of conflicting thoughts because 
it was kind of a special thing for me and a special place. And, and I was, I guess I was somewhat worried about sharing it with, with a wide audience. And I, I don't know, I, I don't, I felt like maybe I wasn't sure if that would, um, affect the, the value of it to me. I, I guess I, I, I can't quite, uh, explain very effectively what was going on in, in, in my mind regarding this, but I just didn't, there was part of me that was really had reservations. And, uh, honestly, I, I, I did consider just, uh, maybe printing like 10 copies of this and giving it to a few people that are close to me and, and never, um, discussing it again. Uh, so time went on and I thought about it and thought about it and then I forgot about it. And in the meantime, I kind of, uh, back in the swing of things here, uh, still thinking about, uh, I guess when, when I got, when I got back from Alaska, I was, my main motivation was I need to figure out how I can, how I can get back here. Um, you know, I was on the plane from Fort Yukon going back to Fairbanks and I was already thinking what, you know, what can I do? How in this modern reality where I have, um, a family, a home, a job, a really good job, um, uh, everything invested here where I, I live and I can't just pick up and, and walk away from it at all. You know, how can I find a way to experience this? This is just such a special thing. How can I find a way to, to experience this every year? Um, or, or on a, on a more regular basis. And that kind of consumed me, that consumed me for, for a long period of time after I got back. And I actually spent a good part of that winter of 2021 just thinking about that. And I never did come up with a solution. I, I, um, I spent hours and hours just, just kind of brainstorming and trying to figure it out. And, um, I, I guess the, the reality kind of hit me. And, and it's like a lot of us dream about this. And the reality is it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, a, a single one-time trip maybe, maybe once or twice, but... Um, making this a, a part of your life, unless you give up everything else, it's just not realistic. And so I, I started kind of, um, I reluctantly began to accept the fact that this dream was not going to become a reality for me. Um, at least not in the near future. And as I began to accept that, I began to shift my focus to where I, I realized that, you know, dropping everything and going to Alaska for, you know, a, a period of time every winter, um, while that wasn't going to happen, what if I, I, I set aside everything else and focused on um, providing or creating an economic reality where I could retire early enough and still be in good enough physical shape to go and do this on, on more of a, a full-time basis and go spend a month or two or, or even a whole winter out there in the bush. Um, 
And so that's kind of where my focus shifted, uh, something that was more realistic given my life circumstances. It, I'm still kind of working that out and trying to figure that out, but the, the big realization that I came to was this is all going to take money. And um, it, it is something that I'm really passionate about. It's a, a goal that I want to achieve. Um, it, it's going to take some time. And I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm sure as hell going to try. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. And so that's what tipped the scales on, on publishing the book. Uh, it, it, it was something really special to me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to share it with everybody. But um, I see this as a way to not only share this experience with folks like you, but this is a way for me to provide funding to achieve that, that long-term goal, that dream of being able to, to spend more time out there. Um, actually, I've talked with Tyler about this a, a little bit. I, I, I really look forward to, to talking with him about it again. But uh, it, you almost like the people who are remaining out in the bush, it's such an economic sacrifice uh, that just to be able to get out there and do that and live that lifestyle and go without an income and pay for all the expenses of, of getting there, that they you almost have to share your experiences with the outside world just to have the opportunity to, to do it because you can't do it by selling fur like you used to. There, there just is no market that, uh, that's available to, to make that a reality. So um, that that's the book. The, the book is here. The book is available. And, and uh, I was either going to not publish it at all or I was going to go 100% all out um, effort to try and get this in as many hands as possible and sell as many copies as possible. So here I am. More Than Wolverine, an Alaska Wilderness Trapline. And uh, I'm asking you to buy a copy of the book. I'm asking you to buy two, buy five, buy however many that you uh, can afford and, and share them with your friends. Um, you know, give them, give them away for gifts or whatever. But uh, I, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. And just to give you a little uh, insight into the book so you don't... Um, you don't have to guess too much about you know what it's about and and uh, a little bit of the the writing style and what to expect when you get your copy. I'm going to read a little section of the book and, and maybe this will uh, help you decide whether it's something that you want to read. So last night when I did the YouTube live stream, which you can find on my YouTube channel, I did uh, a chapter called Alone, and uh, that was where. Uh, we were about halfway through the trip, and, and Jim left to go back to town uh, for a day or two, and I was I was alone up there, uh, oh, probably 40, 45 miles from the nearest human being, and uh, I was running running the trap line and, and running a couple of our short lines and, and picked up a few links. So if you want to check out that live stream, you can hear me read that. I don't know if it was uh, maybe halfway through the live stream, something like that. Tonight, I'm going to read a chapter titled Up the Porcupine. So this is where we, um, I've arrived in Alaska. We've flown into Fort Yukon. We're at Jim's place in Fort Yukon. I've got, gotten kind of the lay of the land of, of, in the village. And uh, we're, we're leaving the village. We're all, we're packing up and we're, we're uh, heading up the Porcupine River to Jim's cabin. Up the Porcupine. 
We're up early, but we don't need to be. It won't be light for at least a couple hours yet. Breakfast, coffee, and trapping talk start the day. Now comes the task of assembling the right mix of cold weather clothing. I've thought about this about a thousand times over the past year, but didn't have the minus 20 degree weather or the full complement of gear for a test run. I pull clothing out of my suitcase and backpack and lay the items in small piles on the floor. We're headed on a 45 mile snow machine ride with no place to get warm between town and the cabin. It'll be pretty important to start out with plenty of clothing. I'm wearing more layers than I thought humanly possible. Three pairs of wool socks cover my feet, which are inside a pair of extreme cold weather pack boots. I have three pairs of long underwear on, including a merino wool base layer. A pair of fleece pants inside a pair of wool pants cover these. Jim lends me a pair of refrigerator snow bibs to top it off. My torso is covered by about five or six layers of wool, fleece, and poly blend. I have a thick down jacket and a waterproof shell over this. Though I tend to get cold easy, cold doesn't seem possible with all this stuff on. My head is covered with a thick balaclava and a mad bomber rabbit fur hat. I've been told that in native cultures it's often the women who wear rabbit, but it was the warmest hat I could find at a reasonable price, so it'll have to do. Back home I'd be wearing a snowmobile helmet for rides like this, but folks here don't use them, and getting one here from Maine was out of the question. I have a pair of ski goggles that I hope will help block the wind. My hands tend to get cold easy, but with heated handlebars on the snow machine it shouldn't be a problem during the ride. I have a thin pair of fingerless gloves, some fleece deerskin mitts, and a pair of big bulky military surplus mitts to cover these. A box of hand warmers is coming with us too, just in case. The final piece of the clothing puzzle is the most critical. Jim hands me a parka from his collection. It's a very large, tall jacket with a heavy-duty canvas-like outer layer and some insulation. But the most critical part of the parka is the hood, with its fur-lined ruff. The ruff on this one is from either a coyote or a wolf. The coat zips up and out to form sort of a tunnel, closing much of the outside world from most of the wearer's field of vision. As I'm about to experience firsthand, it's a necessary design to block the chilling wind. It's starting to get light and we're pretty well bundled up, so we make our way outside and begin to assemble the load. Last night we got a good start on trip preparation, taking the two snow machines out of storage, starting and fueling them up, and beginning to load gear. Each machine will tow a toboggan, carrying all of the clothing, food, fuel, and other supplies we'll need. I've spent some time examining these toboggans. I haven't seen anything like them elsewhere in my travels, and the same design seems to be universal throughout the village. Archdeacon of the Yukon, Hudson Stuck, learned the importance of the toboggan about a century ago. In his 1914 book, 10,000 Miles with a Dog Sled, Stuck described his team's difficulty in traveling the Yukon Flats with a traditional sled. There is little travel on the flats in winter and a snowstorm accompanied by wind may obliterate what trail there is in an hour. The vehicle used in the flats is not a sled, but a toboggan, and our first mistake was in not conforming to local usage in this respect. There is always a very good reason for local usage about snow vehicles. In addition to being a missionary, priest, and adventurer, he organized the first party to reach the summit of Mount McKinley, now known as Denali. Stuck was a strong advocate for native people across Alaska. By his request, he was buried in the native cemetery here in Fort Yukon. 
The toboggans we're using are long and narrow with a smooth flat bottom. No skis protrude from them, although some subtle runners may line the bottom near the outside edges. Their design maximizes the amount of surface area touching the snow, allowing them to float on top of it while other sleds may tend to dig in, plow through, and push snow. The bottoms of Jim's toboggans are made of large pieces of smooth Teflon material that bend upward at the front. The sides are made of plywood, and holes are drilled every few inches along the top edges of the plywood to accommodate a network of loops created by the weaving and knotting of rope. Each loop serves as a tie-down point to secure the cargo on the, or the sled's cover. The cover can be a blanket, a tarp, or, as in our case, old canvas material recycled from construction projects. The plywood back of the sled supports a Teflon handle, and the sled bottom and 2x4 framing extends about a foot behind the back to accommodate a standing rider. Their lightweight, narrow design may be 16 inches wide, and large surface area make these toboggans ideal for this country. They can weave through narrow bush trails and around obstacles and float over soft snow, all while hauling a surprising amount of weight. The only thing I don't like is the lack of a fixed hitch. When towed by a rope, they like to wander around and often slam into the back of the machine when you hit the brakes. I wonder if this feature, or lack thereof, is a carryover from the days before snow machines when these toboggans were hauled by dogs. Finishing loading doesn't take long. The greatest portion of our freight is gasoline. We'll be burning a lot of it with the snow machines and they don't sell it out in the bush. Every ounce used on the trap line has to be hauled in. Gas is more than $6 a gallon in Fort Yukon. We have a large plastic drum full of it and several small containers. Food, clothing, survival gear, and some trapping supplies fill out the load. We'll be checking traps along the way. We pull out of the Furman driveway onto the hard-packed snow-covered street a little after 9.30 a.m. Jim is driving his newer machine, a Skidoo Tundra, and I'm on his Articat Bearcat. Each has a wooden cargo box mounted on the rear rack and a toboggan in tow. The sun is up above the horizon and it's warm to about 10 below. Here we go. Town is quiet this morning as we pass through, with little moving except the smoke rolling out of most every chimney. It doesn't take long to reach the outskirts, and we're on a plowed road with the occasional driveway leading to a home. There's some sort of subdivision of lots outside of town, but most are vacant lots or in some stage of development. I'm on high alert, trying to focus on each turn we take in the event I need to make my way back to town alone, but after a while it's a little much to keep straight. We're quite a ways out of town now, but the road is still plowed, and suddenly I see a bridge ahead. It's a nice one, too. Probably cost at least half a million to build from the looks of it. Later, I'll learn that the bridge crosses the Sucker River, and that the road and bridge are there to provide access to firewood on tribal lands. Locals call it the Wood Road. It's the beginning of our journey, and I'm already starting to get cold, even though I'm not sure I'll admit it. Jim stops his machine to check on me and the sleds, and walks up to me. You cold? he asked, knowingly. <laughs> Your parka's not zipped all the way up. I've got the parka zipped to my neck, negating the tunnel effect and the protective properties of the rough. With some added effort, I get the thing zipped up to nose level and then out, and much of the surroundings disappear from view. My entire field of vision has been reduced to a palm-sized opening about six inches in front of my nose, but almost instantly I'm warm. We continue down the wood road, which has transitioned to a smaller, narrower, but well-packed winding trail. Jim's making good time, and I'm going a bit slower with the lack of peripheral vision 
the need to turn my body nearly 180 degrees to take the occasional peek at the toboggan behind me. The next turn I make to look back catches me by surprise. There's a man on a snow machine coming at me. I stop. He does too. He's a native man, probably about middle age. Your toboggan is on his side, he says, pointing behind me. I look back, and there it is, tipped over in the trail. Oh, wow, I say. Has it been there for a while? Yes, he says. Just wanted to let you know. Uh, Thank you, thank you. Who are you, he asks, seeming surprised there'd be someone out there he didn't know. I'm with Jim Furman, heading upriver, I point. I point up the trail. Oh, okay, he up ahead? I nod, and he takes off up the trail, a big empty sled in tow. I tip the toboggan back up where it belongs. The tall gas container is giving the load a pretty high center of gravity. It'll need some adjustment, but first I'll catch up with Jim. The two machines are on a little lake where the trail forks. The other machine heads off as I pull up to Jim's. He tells me the man who stopped me is Gerald James, out cutting firewood. James is a local jack-of-all-trades and entrepreneur. He runs the barge from Circle to Fort Yukon each summer, does maintenance work, and he's an accomplished wolf hunter. We adjust the load and move on. The trail gets narrower and windier. At some point, it breaks out into the frozen, snow-covered water of Eight Mile Slough, which is a side channel to a side channel of the Porcupine River. Ours are now the only fresh tracks in the snow, and the formerly bumpy trail ride gives way to smooth sailing. The slough is a narrow channel with steep, tall sand and gravel banks lined with trees. The sun is just high enough to poke over the tallest spruces and shine rays of light on portions of the channel. We round a corner and spook up a moose, steam rising from its back. It runs in front of the machines for a while before scrambling up the bank and into the trees. Ice gives way to open water in small portions of the slough, mainly at pinch points where the channel narrows or becomes shallower and then the current flows swiftly. We pass on safe ice close by. Jim seems to know where all these are, and I'm careful to follow his tracks closely. I wonder what would happen if one didn't know how to properly navigate places like this. It's not a place I'd want to travel in the dark. We break out to a large river channel, but not large enough to be the porcupine, I think. Turns out it's half the porcupine. The river is split into two channels here. We're near the mouth of the Black River, and on the trail to Chalkitsik. It's easy to get turned around in this country, riddled with channels that snake their way through the wide valley, often with no apparent hint as to the direction they plan to go. They connect to and disconnect from various backwater sloughs and lakes in a pattern that changes a little bit with each spring flood. Jim pulls up to a spot along a high bank on the river and turns off his machine, and it looks like I'll be checking my first set of traps since the long journey from Maine. We walk up the bank through the snow, a fresh few inches of which fell since Jim was last here, and look at a few empty lynx snares. Coming from a place where both lynx trapping and using snares are illegal, this is a new game to me and I have a lot to learn, but I'm immediately struck by how simple it is. Lynx are constantly wandering through willow thickets along river banks in search of their primary prey, snowshoe hares which feed on willows and use them in the surrounding spruces for cover and protection from predators. At this location, Jim's sets are almost too simple to be true. He walks back and forth through the snow a few times to pack down a trail. In the same manner, he makes a couple of side trails off this main trail. Each trail is then guarded with a lynx snare and a few guide sticks. This set works off a simple concept. 
A pack trail is easier walking than, a, than deep snow, even for a lynx, so they tend to use one when they encounter it. As such, most rabbit hunting lynx that cross a trail like this will follow it, and hopefully for the trapper, walk right into the snare. Lynx snaring, like most snaring, is an art, and the possibilities for snare style and design are almost endless. The snare of choice on this trap line consists of 1 16th inch 1x19 galvanized aircraft cable with a wedge lock and a kill spring with a length of number 9 soft wire built in to anchor and support the loop. The loop measures about 8 to 9 inches in diameter, a little wider than it is tall, and is set at a height of about 10 inches from the snow to the bottom of the snare loop. It's painted white to blend in. Throughout North America, there are probably as many variations to this setup as there are trappers who hang cable, but this seems to work pretty well for Jim. As a bonus to Lynx, it takes the Wolverine quite effectively as well. We pack down the fresh snow in the trails, make sure the snares are still functional, and move on. The rest of the journey upriver will be broken up by 8 or 10 stops to check and maintain traps. When Jim started out in this country, more than four decades ago, he'd never set a trap before reaching his cabin. Competition was stiff from other trappers, and there wasn't a whole lot of fur to catch along the way. And even though the river, being a main highway for public transportation, was pretty much fair game for any trapper, I imagine it would be a bit uncomfortable making sets adjacent to the territory claimed by the old-timers. Over the years, as fur prices fell and trappers dropped off, he started setting traps in the abandoned ground along the river corridor. There's more fur here now, and almost nobody else is harvesting it, so there's a great opportunity to pick up some extra fur between town and the cabin. Crossing the river, we climb the opposite bank and wind the machines through an opening dotted with willows and small spruce trees. At the base of one of the spruces is a set. It's a foothold trap set for wolverine and lynx, with a piece of lynx meat wired to the tree, and the trap set at its base, a foot or so back. The bait has been chewed to the bone and the trap and surrounding area are covered with fox tracks. Snow blown and frozen to the ground, the trap didn't fire when the fox came in. He got a free meal, and we're out of fox pelt. A few miles later, we pull up to a nondescript flat along the riverbank to our right, and Jim says it looks like there's something in his snare. I jump off the machine and race over to check it out. He says it looks like a fox, maybe. I get closer and it appears to be a lynx, dead and frozen, covered in the fresh snow. My heart leaps. We've got one! It's a beautiful animal with thick, full fur. Wow! Jim walks up to where I'm at and speaks up. We got another one! Look! I was so enthralled by the first lynx that I didn't even think of the fact that he probably had more sets here. Up ahead in the trail stands a live lynx, caught in a foothold trap and looking at our direction. Jim gets an extra snare from the snow machine and attaches it to a pole taken from the surrounding willows. He's going to demonstrate to me how to dispatch a lynx. After I take a couple of pictures, he uses the pole to slip the snare over the animal's head and gives it a tug as it tightens around the neck. He lifts the lynx in the air and after a short struggle, it's quiet and calm. From start to finish, it takes probably all of 30 seconds. There's nothing pretty, nothing glorious about killing animals. It's a necessary evil and a reminder that death is a common part of life out here. Some people think trappers are cruel. I disagree. Watching this lynx die bothers me, just like it would bother anyone who's human. 
taking the life of any animal is a serious matter. But what sets hunters and trappers apart is our willingness to take part in this necessary process of death. It brings us closer to the harsh reality of nature and reinforces our role at the top of the food chain and our responsibility in helping Mother Nature manage these populations of wildlife. Lynx populations number, numbers fluctuate in decade-long cycles in direct correlation with the abundance of snowshoe hares. This year is predicted to be the last of the high years and a population crash is coming soon. That means that the majority of lynx we're catching this year would, if unharvested, have been destined to a long, slow, and yes, cruel death by starvation as they compete with other lynx for the few remaining hares in these willows. As a general rule, I don't think it's appropriate to lend human characteristics to wild animals. It assumes a lot of animals and perhaps gives humans more credit than we deserve. But for the sake of argument, if I were this lynx and I knew what the future that was to come, 30 seconds at the end of a snare pole would seem quite uncruel by comparison. In all the excitement, I haven't thought to ask Jim if he had any other sets at this spot. A quick glance further down the trail answers that question. A third lynx is there, dead in a snare. Three lynx in three sets. It's been quite a stop. We remake the sets, load our catch in the sleds, and continue upriver. The river is at its full size now. It's massive, measuring more than a thousand feet across. Other than a few places to watch for open water, travel is easy. Sometime around two or three in the afternoon, we take a course for the left bank and a faint trail that leads to a patch of tall timber. The wind has drifted some of the fresh fallen snow onto the trail, making the ascent of the steep bank a challenge. We stop and carve out an opening in the vertical drift with a pack shovel that's stored under the seat of the bearcat I'm driving. After that, it's a breeze. We weave through the willows and spruce for a short ways, and I see a cabin in the opening up ahead. So this is it. The small clearing on this flat above the Porcupine River is lined with towering spruce trees of a size that can be a little hard to find this north, far north of the Arctic Circle. The stand extends to the north and west, but to the south is a thicket of younger growth with trees so tightly packed I wouldn't dare to try walk through them. The clearing has a cabin on each end. One is a tiny old shack that's been here for decades, and on the, the other is so new it doesn't even have a door on it yet. We head into the new cabin and I check out my home for the next two weeks. The one thing all cabins in the winter woods have in common is that it takes an agonizingly long time to get them heated up. Job number one is to get a fire going in the big barrel stove. Jim does this while I take a look at the recent construction project. Aside from relying on two heavy blankets to shelter us from the elements rather than a proper door, the cabin looks pretty good. It measures 14 by 16 feet with the stove and its welded in flat top cooking surface a countertop for food prep and dishes, a table for eating, drinking coffee, and shooting the breeze, and two corners, one with a bed and the other with a cot, for sleeping. Despite its small size, the cabin seems plenty spacious enough. Like newer homes, it hasn't had time to accumulate the inevitable clutter. We head out for a quick ride behind the cabin to check a few traps and snares Jim has set nearby. Small winding trails connect a couple of tiny lakes. It's a neat little ride. Nothing's in the traps, and we return to the cabin to throw some more wood in the stove. Having never built one of my own, I've always admired the craftsmanship that goes into log cabin making. Each log is fitted 
to its mate below and notched in the corners to help support the structure. The spaces between the logs are chinked with moss to keep the frigid air from entering. The roof is made of live edge lumber slabs, probably from a chainsaw mill, covered in thick plastic and then a layer of dirt. A window by the dining table is covered with clear plastic. Glass is likely to follow. It lets light in, at least when it's light out. The floor is covered in plywood, much nicer than the dirt floor trapping cabins often described in books. The door, or the opening I should say, requires a step over a couple of logs to get in. Jim knows from experience that these cabins tend to sink into the ground over time, so starting things out much higher is a way of compensating for that. The height of the cabin is impressive as well. Like me, Jim stands over six feet tall, and it's nice to have a cabin you can stand up in without having to worry about hitting your head. The barrel stove is humping. The heat pouring out of it is slowly soaking into the cold spruce logs and everything else inside the cabin. We go outside and begin, begin, begin unpacking the load in the fading light. Personal gear goes inside and to each of our respective corners, and food and trapping supplies to the other cabin. The other cabin, across the yard from the new one, serves as kind of a garage slash utility shed slash food storage area. It's considerably smaller, with a dirt floor and short, sunken stature. I have to crouch down to get in and walk around. This cabin was originally built as a cache, and Jim and his brother Joe's main cabin was at the site which now sports the new one. When their main cabin burned many years ago, they moved into this one and used it as their trapping cabin. It took a long time, but Jim finally rebuilt, and this little building is reverting to cache status. We unload the sleds as darkness sets in and return to the now warm cabin. A bit of supper and a bit of skinning is on the evening's agenda. The two snared links we picked up on the trail are frozen solid. Their fur is so insulating that they'll be two days in the cabin before they're thawed enough to skin, I'm told. The links we caught alive in the trap is ready, though, and after dinner I observe in the lantern light while Jim skins, fleshes, and stretches the pelt. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed that excerpt from uh, my new book, More Than Wolverine, an Alaska Wilderness Trap Line. Uh, again, you can find the book on Amazon, and I would really appreciate your support in purchasing the book and spreading the word. Let your friends know. Put it on Facebook, Instagram, uh, emails, text, whatever. Share it. Share the book, and uh, I, I would I would absolutely appreciate that so much, guys. I, I really thank you. And uh, thanks for everyone who continues to listen in, even though this is not every week. Uh, it's more like been like every month lately, but um, I can't stay away forever. I always keep coming back and, and uh, love to talk with you guys every chance that I get. And uh, this, this is an exciting project for me, and I really hope that you enjoy the book. Um, and I appreciate having you here. All right, guys, till next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping, and we'll catch you on the next episode and buy my book please thanks